Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 20. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. It is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? There was the sense, as Paul describes it, I think, in the early church, that conversion was not simply conversion that involved personal morality, it certainly involved that, but it also involved this sense even of what was wisdom. There was the idea that one had to be trained in a different worldview, a different understanding of even what would be counted as wisdom. And so Christians were made by a process, and I'm using the word here made, that is it was a discipline. As Paul put it elsewhere, that you had to be trained in righteousness. And they were quite conscious of a different set of practices that we might simply characterize. I think I talked last week that characterized by a life of peace. That resurrection marks the end of one set of practices controlled by death and resurrection institutes a different set of practices, a different worldview. And the death of resurrection of Christ then opens up this new possibility. A key passage that Origen talks about, that you know, in the early church, a person to become a Christian, they became a catechumen. They went through a training period. And the two key verses, that actually it's the same verse, is in Isaiah 2, 2 to 4, and Micah 4, 1 to 4, the verse that describes the new kingdom, that they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. That is the depiction then of this alternative kingdom. And so Christians use this passage because they saw themselves as the fulfillment. We're fulfilling this passage. We're doing this now. Justin Martyr in his dialogue with Trifo, he used it, these verses, to describe the new culture that he says was being formed in Christians now. In fact, early Christians, they produced a training manual called the Didache. And in this Didache, uh, it talks about, you know, the two ways, the alternative ways, the ways of the world and the way the church are to act. In the church, we bless those who curse us. We pray for our enemies. And they would hand you, okay, here's the training manual. If you want to be a Christian, then you're going to have to follow the training manual, the way the heathen act and the way the Christian act was spelled out. And so the idea is that we embody the way of life that Jesus models for us. And maybe during this period when the church was persecuted, 
there was a strong sense that a Christian, you know, it was a training because you're going to endure persecution. You need discipline. To be admitted into the church, you had to show you were ready because not everybody could do this thing. As Tertullian put it around AD 200, Christians are made, not born. And I think what he meant by that, that is a process. By the late second century, many Christian communities, they forbid outsiders to come in. Due to persecution, they were afraid, like in Athens, well, what if lying informers come in among us? They might inform on us. So the growth of the Christian communities, it wasn't because they saw, oh, great preaching or attractive worship services. It was because they saw different behavior. The church was inaccessible to outsiders. You weren't welcome. But people wanted to join this special group of people because they knew by the way they lived, by the way they shared their material goods, by the way they loved one another, well, these people are different. And so Christians were attractive because of their Christian habitus, their Christian habits. But of course, things begin to change, at least for some Christians. Tertullian talks about that he had a church and it was in a, apparently an apartment building. But they just had one little apartment. And there's one Christian that he talks about, yeah, we met in, not just in an apartment, but we met in the bedroom of the apartment. So just a few people were meeting. Tertullian was afraid that the Christians in their little apartment would get too rambunctious and disturb the neighbors because the worship service was very exciting. By the time Origen comes along, they've rented a whole apartment building. The church has grown, but Origen also talks about the group was so large he couldn't keep track of everybody. And he was afraid that some were not listening to the sermon. Imagine that. That they were going to the far reaches of the house and maybe playing truant and telling profane stories. But of course, the largest change came in 312 AD. And this is when Constantine has his vision of the cross. He felt conflicted. He did not, in fact, become a Christian. He said, well, I'm going to wait to do that because I have some things I need to do. Now, the story is told, and I don't think the story is true, but it captures the conflict that Constantine must have felt. It said that he began to have his soldiers baptized in mass. But he told them, hold your right hand up out of the water because we don't want your killing arm to be Christian. Now, I don't know that that's true or not, but that captures the feeling of conflict. Roland Baton, who Stan tells me he's met, tells the story that there were seven candidates for the throne that Constantine was in competition with. And of course, they're using the religion that Christianity has become maybe 10% or more of the population has become Christian. And so they're using policies toward the Christians, either in persecution or like Constantine, he's going to tolerate the Christians, but it's a political move. He could be accepted by the church eventually because in the popular mind, as he rose to the throne, there had been a fusion between Rome and Christianity as over and against the barbarians and the pagans, so that if you were a Roman, it came to be equated with being Christian. 
Christians felt no impropriety in beginning to arm themselves. And they began to inscribe the cross on their instruments of war. Constantine even counted himself a successor to the martyrs. He said, you know, that the martyrs had commenced with their blood what he had completed then with his sword. He reversed the notion of martyrdom. The Roman peace, Pax Romana, was equated with Christian peace. So that literally they're going to begin to quote Micah and Isaiah and say, well, yeah, now we've got the Pax Romana, and that's what Isaiah was talking about. Maybe it never occurred to anyone to suggest that he sell everything, he stopped being the emperor, acknowledge King Jesus, and lay down his sword. We really don't know, you know, to what degree he understood Christianity. Had anyone really pressed the words of Jesus about, you know, you need to hate your own life, you need to become a servant to become a leader. Did he know about the Sermon on the Mount, about turning the other cheek, going the second mile? Surely he understood that for its first 300 years, the church had so repudiated violence that Christians were not allowed to be soldiers. And perhaps we can understand the temptation. Perhaps the temptation was too great. And the harder part of the gospel was set aside not just for Constantine, but actually it was set aside for the whole church. And the new sensibility arose, and even a new way to interpret Scripture. Augustine, who is kind of the theologian for Constantine, under the Constantinian period, he said, well, you know that turning the other cheek stuff? You don't need to literally do that. You can do it spiritually. You don't need to bodily do it. Just do it in your attitude. This sounds a lot like my father. He told me about the preacher. Somebody came in and punched him in the nose. And he said, are you going to turn the other cheek? And the preacher punched him back. And he said, yeah, now I've turned my other cheek. I think that may miss the spirit of what Jesus was talking about. But Augustine said that we can practice Jesus' words inwardly. That our attitudes are more important than our acts. Just the opposite of what the Didache had emphasized. That you need to embody the model of Jesus. And the church began to accommodate evil practices so as to achieve a greater good. Violence, power, worldly empire became a vehicle for the gospel. And what went unnoticed is that the gospel became a vehicle for violence, power, and worldly empire. The willingness to exceed the necessity of evil as a tool in bringing about righteousness brought about a kind of Neoplatonic reading of the Bible in which it was presumed God is establishing his kingdom by Constantine, by utilizing worldly power. And so the first Christians, where they thought the Rome was the evil empire, the Christians in this age were a part of Rome and they could not raise the question or understand maybe we ourselves have become evil. You know, it's not an unheard of thing that that's really what we do when we become a Christian, isn't it? We don't just question our own morality. But we question, wait a minute, I'm a part of an evil system. I need to repent 
But I also need to change my world up. And that's what got lost, I'm afraid. Think about Saul. He went to the religious authorities as a Pharisee that he might arrest and bring bound to Jerusalem any who were teaching the way. It was not only clear, but it was common sense that this new religion was dangerous, both religiously and politically. We need to stamp out these Christians. This was the consensus of all the leading Jewish authorities. It's evident in their arrest of the first Christians. That is, my point here is that Christianity challenged the world of Judaism. It challenged the world of Rome. And the first lesson of Christianity is that common sense, even that based on religious and legal conviction, is subject to common delusion. And the presumption that the good guys and bad guys are just easily discernible because they wear the black hats and the white hats, you can't assume that. This original challenge to common sense, I think, was overwhelmed by the Constantinian shift. And so we're in Acts 7, 17, 11, the Bereans, it says, search the scriptures to test who? They were even testing Paul, the apostolic word. But with the Constantinian shift, this would include the notion that what is known by an already given common sense or shared understanding, well, that just naturally coincides with the Bible. It was presumed that God was now placing Christianity in a new position in regard to earthly power. Now God is working through the principalities and powers. He's using Constantine. He's using Rome. Isn't it clear that it is God's work in history to use Rome to propagate the gospel. And it might have seemed indelicate to point out to Constantine that he was using the Christian religion for his own political purposes. And maybe it's still a kind of indelicacy to suggest that, you know, who were counted the heretics by Constantine? Was it just coincidence that the Donatists and the Arians were also his political and ethnic enemies? I think that may have had something to do with it. Theological divisions fused with already existing rifts within the social structure. In the West, the Donatists, they were actually up in northern Africa. It was the Donatists, the Berbers, the Punics, they were against the Latin elements. And in the East, the Christian controversies over Christ, the Copts, the Syrians, the Armenians were pitted against the Greeks. These weren't just theological controversies, they were ethnic controversies. They were controversies about who's in Rome and who's not in Rome. And to raise such issues and dangers, maybe not just simply the political decisions of Rome, but the choice of the church, you know, understand even today we've acceded to the decision of the Roman church councils in regard to the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of the Trinity. That these church councils make theological as well as structural decisions for the church. And so no one needed to go to their Bible to justify the Constantinian shift it seems not to have occurred to anyone to have challenged Constantine. I don't know that they didn't, but maybe no one told him that if he wanted to be a Christian, 
he'd have to repudiate the world. Wasn't that just the belief? No one thought to say, maybe, if you want to be a servant of Jesus, you have to stop being a politician. You have to stop being a warrior. You have to stop using violence. No one suggested he might consider relinquishing the throne. But why shouldn't they have suggested that? Jesus renounced the throne. He renounced the principalities and powers. He refused to rule in that way. And his earlier followers just assumed that was the model that they were to follow. But then the church accommodated Constantine and not the other way around. And it was presumed that the evil empire had become the good empire. And all any good Christian needed to do was be a good Roman. Now, I hope you're recognizing this may sound a little bit familiar in our country. And so the questioning of common sense, which Christianity originally demanded, it became, I think, a near impossibility. Because common sense, that is what everybody knew to be true, it now trumped what the Bible said. Not that they did this consciously, but this was what made it possible. It was presumed that there is a natural revelation. They even came up with a theology of natural revelation where it was presumed that this intelligibility of the world is something that all men share and we can just plug in Christianity to this intelligibility. No one needed to go to their Bible to justify abandoning nonviolence. The view held for three centuries. Likewise, cooperation with state purposes became the norm. Where the first Christians, you know, they had a radically subversive relation to the state. Paul was beheaded. All of the apostles were killed. Jesus defied the Roman state that put a seal upon his tomb. Jesus broke the seal of the Roman Empire. Here is the first radical disobedience to state. Cooperation with the state became normative. And it displaced the fairly straightforward notion that Jesus is our model in these things. And of course this new ethic, there's nothing new about it. It's just a return to the old way of doing things. The ethic of empire. The knowledge of good and evil, it's called. Natural epistemology. What we know to be obviously true, it became just culturally true. And that was presumed to be biblical. To state it more precisely, what was biblical was presumed to fit into an already existing understanding. Jesus was inserted into an already existing cultural worldview understanding rather than founding a new understanding, rather than doing what Paul is describing here, challenging the wisdom of the world. Now maybe this was gradual. And it was so overwhelming. Maybe it wasn't even conscious to people. For Augustine, you know, he's going to accept the just war tradition. He's going to accept the Roman legal tradition. He's going to quote Cicero, a Roman legal specialist, in addition to Jesus. He was caught up in the current of history, which seemed to be the new way God was making himself known. Yeah, I'm not just telling you this history because it's past. I'm telling you this history because I think we're still part of a Constantinian history. We're at more profoundly Constantinian today 
than they ever were in the Roman period. So retrospectively, we should be able to question this natural legacy that has been handed down to us. Maybe not just to reject it, but at least to be critical about it, right? For something as basic as the shift that for 300 years you could not be part of the military and then you had to be a Christian to be a part of the Roman army. It's a complete shift. And the accompanying a shift from a rejection of violence to its acceptance. It reflects a completely different reading strategy. It was not that suddenly it was understood Oh, now Jesus changed his mind. He allows for violence. But rather commitment to Jesus' teaching was mitigated by something stronger. There were stronger commitments at work. And his teaching was relegated to a different plane, a different dimension, to a spiritual dimension, to a future dimension. And the circumstance of killing, stabbing, slaughtering, to fit that into being a follower of Christ, it clearly reflects that an entirely different epistemology, a different way of knowing is at work with a different set of overriding commitments. And to suggest that these new commitments are not reflected in the decisions of the early church, I think is naive. I think that it is just more Constantinianism. The church that takes the decisions of the council, this is all of our mainline churches, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, and then all of the mainline denominations, they all accept the councils as being Holy Spirit driven. And I'm not saying the Holy Spirit might not have been involved, but do we need to look at these councils critically and look at the situation critically to equate the decision of the councils with the Holy Spirit, I think is a kind of blunder. Maybe not a blunder in particular details, but just a blunder in the way that God works in the world. Are the councils guided by the spirit of peace if they've relinquished a basic commitment to peace? Well, maybe you say, yeah, maybe they could still be. But isn't it the case that certain subjects are foreclosed for debate? You know, just what are you going to talk about? Are you going to talk about pacifism, the role of power, the church and the sword? Those were never subjects for debate. While other subjects will be open for debate. And I believe they were open for debate because they may directly or indirectly serve the purposes of empire. So to imagine it was only theological considerations at play is to overlook the fact that the overwhelming theological consideration. You know, what should it have been? Well, ethics, the role of the church and empire, the role of violence. At a minimum, one might consider that the image of God that emerges from the councils by excluding nonviolence as a topic might have skewed our image of God. As Denny Weaver asked, what is there about the Council of Nicaea, the formulas of Nicaea and Chalcedon, that expresses the character of the reign of God in its particular nonviolent, peaceable character? And he says there's none. Nothing. Virtually nothing. He concludes it is only the church which no longer specifically reflected Jesus' teaching about nonviolence 
and his rejection of the sword that can proclaim Christological formulas devoid of ethics as the foundation of Christian doctrine. And so what's being described, it's not simply that they were mistaken, it's that they're excluding certain topics and certain understandings of God that we then are the heirs of. The abstract categories of man and God in these formulas would allow the church to accommodate the sword and violence while still maintaining a confession about Christ at the center of its theology. And so we get Anselmian theology, Calvinist theology, transactional theology. Calvin will burn the heretics at the stake theology. I don't know if that's a theology, but as a result, perhaps of what the councils included, but maybe of what they excluded, we get a particular understanding of God. And this exclusion served the purpose of allowing for the return of a kind of natural theology, a common sense understanding. The resurrection of Jesus was not a miraculous event within a pre-existing framework of understanding. It's a apocalyptic. It's changing up everything. It recasts the possibility of human understanding. That's the point of the gospel. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus exposed this pre-existing common sense understanding as wrong. It was and it is wrong, and its involvement with death is wrong, and it proves itself wrong in its continued involvement with a death-dealing logic. Let me end with just a happy story. And this is the story of Cyprian. Cyprian was a prominent citizen. He was a politician. He lived a, a fairly indulgent life by his own description. And then he saw these Christians and he was attracted to this group of people. And he describes how he, even before he would even attempt to be a Christian, he wanted to extract himself from his indulgent lifestyle. And so he's tried to throw off this and before he makes a final commitment. And then he takes the decisive step. He submitted to Christian baptism, which they understood. Oh, that's the point of, of turning. And as Cyprian tells the story, it was baptism that made the difference. He says, by the help of the water of new birth, the stain of former years had been washed away. And a light from above, serene and pure, had been infused into my reconciled heart. After that, by the agency of the Spirit breathed from heaven, a second birth had restored me to a new man. And then in a wondrous manner, doubtful things at once began to assure themselves to me. What before had seemed difficult began to suggest a means of accomplishment, what has been thought impossible to be capable of being achieved. And Cyprian becomes a bishop in the church and he wanted Christians then to keep true to their tradition. And he understood this meant embodying, living out the good news, bearing it in their bodies, living the message visibly and faithfully so that outsiders would see that Christians what they were about. Ideally, they would be attracted to join them because of the manner of their living. And this is what he writes. He writes the, the treatise of encouragement. This is 256 AD. 
Beloved brethren, we are philosophers not in words, referencing our passage in Corinthians, but in deeds. We exhibit our wisdom not by our dress, but by truth. We know virtues by their practice, rather than through boasting of them. We do not speak great things, but we live them. Go and do likewise. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.